If you would open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we just thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity and the privilege to be able to gather together and to worship you. We're grateful, Father, for just the incredible amount of mercy and grace and goodness that you've shown upon us. And Father, we ask this morning as we continue our worship that, Father, it would be our habit to always look at your word intently, to take it very seriously. That, Father, it would be the desire of our heart to understand what it is saying. And then, Father, also that you would give to us the ability and also the desire to want our minds to be shaped by what your word says. That we would think your thoughts after you. That we would not only learn to think biblically, but, Father, we ask you to help us to be committed to think biblically. It's at times unnatural for us, Father, to think that way. We're prone to go in our own direction. So we ask that you would give to us the discipline that's necessary. And so, Lord, we are grateful that you preserved your word for us. And so we ask now, Lord, that you would enable us as we seek to understand. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, most of us are aware by now that Paul is dealing, in a sense, with a young church. Uh, They have uh, several faults, and some of the faults that they have are basically... Ideals and behaviors, thoughts from the way they were before they were believers. And it's kind of, it's not necessarily that it's come back, it was always, it was always there, but it's kind of infiltrating uh, the way that they are acting as believers. Uh, the idea, you know, when you and I become believers in Christ, normally what should be taking place is as we read the Word of God, as we're taught the Word of God, as we are instructed by the Word of God, as we hang out with more and more believers, that shapes our behavior and our thinking patterns because we were pagans before now we're children of God and there's that transformation that's taking place and it's to affect every aspect of our life and so we at times struggle with old ways of thinking or old patterns of thinking uh, we, we have uh, difficult at times with maybe a lack of discipline in the area of our emotions you know it's the individual who continues to fly off the handle or the individual who's quick to judge and so, you know, that's continue, continually being changed, or it should be continually being changed and challenged by the Word of God as we grow as, as believers. And so here, the, the church as a whole, that's kind of what they're experiencing is, is that, you know, they're, they're kind of showing up who they are. They've, they've come to know Christ, and there's these old ways of thinking and, and old cultural habits that they have, and they're kind of infiltrating the church, and that's, that's what's causing the disruption. And they're not getting along as they ought to be. And so there's rivalries and there's cliques, there's splits that are starting to happen here in the church. We've already seen 
that they were having difficulties just dealing with the head covering and the rivalry between men and women. Uh, they were having difficulty at the Lord's table and where there was a rivalry between the rich and the poor. And now there's evidence that there are rivalries as to the possession of spiritual gifts. Certain gifts in particular, but nevertheless in the realm of spiritual gifts, uh, there were individuals who were thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to, and they were looking down upon others, and it was all based on the presence or the lack of the presence of spiritual gifts in the life of an individual. And so they're having these difficulties. And so Paul is now going to begin to address this. And so he says in the beginning, when it comes to spiritual gifts in verse 1, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. You, you could also use the word, I don't want you to be confused. The, the, the same idea is there because there is confusion. And some of that confusion is because they're not informed. They don't understand spiritual gifts, what they're about, how they are to be used, what God intended with them. I think that uh, when you look around today, and this is, it's been true now for decades, and it continues to be said, and it's probably true every five years, that it seems that it's easier now for evangelical Christians to be led astray by false doctrine than before. I mean, it seemed to be easy 20 years ago, and then it seemed to be a little easier 15 years ago, and it seems to be even easier today. I think part of the reason why it's easier today is the advent of the internet. I'm not really opposed to the internet, we just have to understand what it is. And we've heard the jokes, you know, people say, well, I know it's true because I read it on the internet. You know, that, that, that has kind of replaced what people used to say was, well, I know it's true because it was on TV. I never forget, uh, I was having a discussion once in the jail with uh, a good number of inmates and we were talking about uh, the book of Genesis and I was going through uh, the issues between evolution and creation and I was talking about things that you can watch on the Discovery Channel and those types of things and I was kind of pointing out some of their presuppositions and where they're wrong and whatnot and one of the inmates raised their hand and he said, wait a minute. He says, I thought they weren't allowed to show things on TV that weren't true. <laughs> and, and, of course, the immediate thought is to explode in laughter. And he was serious. And I didn't laugh. And so I had to explain to them how TV worked and what was shown on there and how, you know, how things kind of went. And there were several of them that were actually very surprised by that. I do believe, though, that even though we may be able to point to the internet or a lot of different books that come out, and you've heard me go on before about my distrust of most Christian bookstores, uh, because uh, just because it's a Christian bookstore doesn't mean that everything they sell is Christian uh, and not necessarily biblical. But I do believe that the main reason, though, why we are so easily led astray is we still really don't study the Bible much. For all the Bible studies that we have, we're not always really paying attention. We tend to, is this human nature, we tend to gravitate towards things that we already agree with. That's not necessarily bad, but it can be bad if we ignore those things that we don't agree with instead of trying to figure out why. Perhaps our disagreement, we are in error. We may not be, but, but we need to study. We need to understand. We need to realize that 
The Bible is not just a book for us to read so we can just feel better about ourselves psychologically. It's not just a book that we have that we possess and maybe read just so we can feel more spiritual, whatever that's supposed to be like. The the Bible is God's communication to us. God addresses every issue in life, every aspect of life, those things that we encounter and things we don't encounter, things we think about and things that we don't think about. And so we don't always think about coming to the Word of God on a regular basis, wanting it to shape the way that we think, wanting it to change if necessary, which is often the case, to change the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about life, the way we think about God. Sometimes we will read books about the Bible, which is not bad. But a lot of times what's happening is is Christians just attend services. We just attend services. And, And what happens in many cases, and I don't know what the percentage is, and I don't know if anybody has an accurate study, but too often what does happen is what we're looking for when we attend services is we're looking to be inspired. What we want is a Christianized motivational speech you know rah rah overcome sin and all those types of things and it's okay to encourage each other to overcome sin but you know the boost you get from any from a good motivational speaker still doesn't last real long what we want is actual change imagine if the doctors that you go to were like that they were there to be your cheerleader to cheer you on to good health I don't know about you, but I've never really been one who cares a whole lot whether a doctor has good bedside manner or not. I mean, I would prefer they have it, but I don't really care. I, I just want to know that I can have confidence that they know what they're doing. And so if they don't deliver the bad news to me in a, in a good way, I'm okay with that. But I want, I want the information. I want the facts. And I think you do as well. Imagine if you've had some kind of problem. And let's say that, that whatever pain you're experiencing is, is a similar symptom to what maybe your parents and grandparents have felt before and things didn't go well for them. Maybe there's a certain disease that runs in your family and you are very much aware of that. And so you go to your doctor and he's very cheerful, which is okay. How are you doing? So I got this, this pain. and Ah, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. You know, just drink some more orange juice, you know, and, you know, take your vitamins. You know, and you may may leave there all excited, but when that pain comes back, so you go to him again. Doc, I mean, I appreciate the, the encouragement to drink more orange juice and take my vitamins, but I still got this pain. You just worry too much. You let life get you down. Well, can you run a test or something? I mean, we become concerned. So it's too often what happens as Christians, because we, for whatever reason, many different reasons, I think, what we're coming for is to be inspired instead of to, to be changed and challenged in, in our lives as believers. And it's because maybe there's a lack of our really paying attention to what the Word of God says and thinking about the Word of God says. D.A. Carson says that evangelical Christians today are much more liable to go off into weird doctrines and hold strange ideas than they were 25 to 45 years ago. Peter Masters, if you've never heard his name, he, is, uh, he preaches in London. He's 
at the church that was at one time pastored by Charles Spurgeon. That's who that is. And Peter Masters states that the reason why uh, this exists, this uh, easiness where we ease into strange doctrines, he says, well, this is really from the evil one. All these strange doctrines are, are around to destroy one thing, true worship. That is worshipful of intelligent appreciation and adoration of our glorious God. He then goes on to underline the fact that intelligent worship equals worship in which we understand why we are worshiping as we do and understand the things that make up our worship. And again, I would add to that that when we gather together to worship God, it's great if we feel better when we're done. But the reason that we gather together is to worship the Lord. We are to honor him, to respect him, to, to praise him, to give him our love and adoration. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are doing that, not so much as to what we can get out of it, though we will get many good things out of it, but our focus is on him. The focus is not on us. He goes on to say that the doctrines that we hold to, the doctrines that we seek to see exhibited in the meetings of the church and the preaching of the word of God, it seems that too often the kind of worship that exists today is not the kind of worship that the scriptures set forth. If you go back to the 1980s, about 40 years ago, there is the influence of Paul Yungi Cho. He was a pastor of the largest church in the world, in Korea. Later, he was convicted of embezzling about $12 million from the church. Uh, but the name of the church then was the Full Gospel Central Church in Seoul, Korea. Uh, it is now pastored by uh, Young Hoon Lee. Not that that's all that important. But the church back when Yungi Cho was there had about 500,000 members. So it's easily the largest church in the world. In 1993, they said the church had 700,000 members, and as of a few years ago, they claimed that their membership is 830,000. It's gigantic. One of the things that Yungi Cho was known for, and a lot of things that he believed hasn't changed much in that church, was his views concerning the visualization of answers to prayer. Now, he wrote a book that became very popular. It was called The Fourth Dimension. And in that book and some other books, he describes how he learned to pray. Now, I'm going to read this to you because what I want you to grasp is that when it comes to false doctrine and things that lead us astray, these kinds of things are not unusual. This is what I mean. Is even though this came out of the past, this has not only been relegated to the past. There are many people that you know that go to other churches, that pick up Christian books or read things on the internet, and they are greatly influenced by what they read. And it seems sometimes, especially, that the, what opens the door are certain kinds of stories. They're very appealing. And so as a result of that, we, we tend to begin to drift and move in a certain direction. There are a lot of reasons for that. I think part of it is because of what we're, maybe what we're looking for. You know, what we're, what we're trying to, you know, what our priorities are and that type of thing. But this is what he says. He said he began, this is Yungi Cho, when he first began to pastor, he said he was very poor, he was living in, in one room. And he wondered what he was doing, and he was, trying, and he was trying to work without a bed, a desk, and a chair, or any means of transportation. So he said he began to pray and ask God for those things to be supplied. He prayed very much for a desk, a chair, and a bicycle. After six months, he still lacked all three, and he became very discouraged. He says, then I sat down and began to cry. Suddenly I felt a serenity, a feeling of tranquility came into my soul. Now I just want you to know, when I read that, 
I roll my eyes. That's my initial response. But there are many people who are drawn to that. We need to understand that. They're drawn to that. And he says this, Whenever I have that kind of feeling, a sense of the presence of God, he always speaks. So I waited. Then that still small voice welled up in my soul, and the Spirit said, My son, I heard your prayer a long time ago. Right away I blurted it out, Then where is my desk and my chair and my bicycle? And the Spirit then said, The Spirit said, Yes, this is the trouble with you. And with all my children, they beg me, demanding every kind of request, but they ask in such vague terms that I can't answer. Don't you know that there are dozens of kinds of desks and chairs and bicycles? But you've simply asked me for a desk and a chair and a bicycle, and you've never ordered a specific desk, chair, and bicycle. Besides there being a myriad of problems with all of that, again, there are many, many individuals who are at least churched, who are drawn to that. Why? The main reason is they don't know the Word of God well enough. That I don't mean they have to know the Word of God. You know, we always think, well, the, you know, I can't know the Word of God like a pastor does. They may not know the Word of God like that. But there is no excuse for you and I not to know the word. The longer you and I are believers, we should be thinking biblically. There are many things we should know. That's why there's a very large number of topics in the Bible. And, and so we need to make sure that we are paying attention. We're getting it. Because who knows the things that you're learning now, you may need that information 10 years from now. And so we need to be shaped by what the Word of God says. Young E. Cho said that was the turning point in his life. He says it's almost as if the Lord really didn't know what he wanted until he was specific enough to tell him exactly what he wanted. And then he tells another story where a woman, now, now that he's learned this, a woman comes to him and she's looking for a husband. And so he begins by saying, God never works by himself, but only through you. God is the eternal source, but he only works through your request. I don't know if you've heard some of the certain charismatic leaders who will say that God is unable to work on earth unless you give him permission. Okay, that's, that's not biblical, but apparently that comes out of churches and there's people who believe that. And so he asked the lady, do you really want me to pray for you? Of course she said yes, so he had her sit down. He gave her a piece of paper and pencil and he began to ask her questions. He says, if you write down the answers to my questions, then I will pray for you. You really want a husband? What kind of husband do you want? Asian, Caucasian, black, what do you want? So she answered. He said, okay, write it down. Number two, do you want your husband to be tall? As tall as six feet? Do you want to be as small as five feet? She said, I want a tall husband. Of course, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. How tall? How tall is tall? He said, be specific. 5'10", 5'10 and a half, 6'2", 6'4 is too tall. I mean, what is it? But anyway, uh, then he, he said, write that down. Number three, do you want your husband to be slim and nice? <laughs> Nice looking or just pleasantly plump? I guess it's pleasantly plump and ugly, but I don't know. But anyway, she says she wanted him skinny. Number four, what kind of hobby do you want your husband to have? Most women would probably say none, but she said musical. Uh, number five, what kind of job do you want your husband to have? She says school teacher. He said, close your eyes. Can you see your husband? 
She says, yes, I see him clearly. Then he said, okay, let's order him now. <laughs> now again, it's in his books. There's people who pray this way. And they're praying for whatever it is they want. And some people, they may, they may get exactly what they ask for. I am convinced that at times, and this isn't heresy, you know, Satan can answer prayers too. God allows him to, but sometimes it's to deceive you. It's to pull you away. And so again, let's order him now. And he basically he says, until you can see your husband or whatever your request is in your imagination, you can't order because God will never answer. You must be able to see very clearly. And so then he laid these things out and prayed for her. As you know, we don't order God to do things for us. He is, he is not our servant. He is our Lord in heaven. But again, there is just a plethora of opportunities to be influenced in the wrong way. Uh, if you watch Trinity Broadcasting ne Network, TBN, they do have a few good individuals on there. I don't watch any of it, but they do have a few good individuals on there, which I think is actually a very bad thing. Because what happens is you see a couple of good individuals on there. We may tend to assume everyone on there is good. Just like you go into a Christian bookstore and you buy a very solid book, you may assume that any book you buy from there is going to be good. One of, the, one of their uh, teachers they broadcast says that every man who has been born again is an incarnation. The believer is much of an incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth. There's just all kind of issues with those things. There's a pastor of, of a church in Seattle, the Seattle Christian Faith Center, and he tells his congregation to claim their godhood. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit had a conference, he said. And they said, let us make man an exact duplicate of us. And then he told them, he says, I don't know about you. He says, but that really turns my crank. He says, an exact duplicate of God. And then he told the congregation, say it out loud. I am an exact duplicate of God. And so the congregation repeated after him. Another individual said, Jesus is the first person ever to be born again. Why did his spirit need to be born again? Because it was estranged from God. There's an avalanche of this kind of thinking and more. What we have is a fundamental lack of knowledge of the Word of God, which leads us to a fundamental lack of knowledge of understanding who God is. Ignorance results in heresy because of our thoughts. Because if they're not true to the Word of God, they easily run off into that which is contrary to the Word of God. If they don't run off into heresy, they run off into fanaticism, or we begin to overemphasize things that should not be overemphasized with the result that the Word of God becomes distorted. Ignorance is one of the great dangers of the Christian church. One of the dangers that goes along with it is the pride that we often develop because we think we have knowledge. You've heard me say their names before. We've talked about Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen and even John Hagee and the problems that they have. In fact, in one of the books that John Hagee wrote called In Defense of Israel, he said this. He said uh, that there is not one verse of Scripture in the New Testament that says Jesus came to be the Messiah. Except if you read John chapter 4, where Jesus was, uh, uh, said he was the Messiah because he spoke to the woman. And he said, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So maybe John hasn't read the Gospel of John. John Hagee also said that Jesus refused to be the Messiah, choosing instead to be the Savior of the world. Except in Acts chapter 2, it says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And in another place, 
John Hagee promotes a false idea that Jews do not need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He said in an interview, the law of Moses is sufficient enough to bring a person into the knowledge of God until God gives him a greater revelation. Everyone else, whether Buddhist or Baha'i, needs to believe in Jesus, but not the Jews. Now you're starting to mess with the gospel. There's just problems with this. But again, we're easily swayed. We're easily pulled aside because, again, an individual may say things that we like, and so that endears us to them, uh, or endears them to us, I should say. And instead of being, well, what does the scripture say? Let's, let's think it through. So here in 1 Corinthians, Paul begins his discussion of spiritual of gifts. Around this topic, again, lies a great deal of confusion, even in our day. And so that's why, again, Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Verse 2 basically states the reason for this confusion and this uh, lack of information. He says that they were led astray. Idols are dumb, meaning they can't speak. And of course, in their society, that was very significant because now you have this new religion, Christianity, where God has spoken. So they're all worshiping idols that can't speak. And the Christians are gathered together saying that God has spoken. He has spoken to them. He's spoken to us. And so these individuals, by contrast, as they look at their dumb idols, are bowing down to these idols that cannot speak, cannot move. And we are bowing down to a God in heaven who fills everything and who speaks constantly through his word. That was a radical idea. And in one sense, it's still a radical idea. Just try to enter this into a conversation that you have with an individual when you tell them, well, God told me. And see how they react. And they're... God speaks to you. And you can say yes, and he speaks to me through his word every day. I don't hear an audible voice, but he speaks to me through his word. And so there's a huge difference between worshiping the genuine God who speaks and a dumb idol. In fact, it was characteristic during that time that you have the Greek gods, many of them who were renowned for being a, store, a source of ecstatic utterances. The Greek god Apollo, where you would, people would come together and they would basically, in a sense, speak in tongues. We have the fortune-telling slave girl in the book of Acts uh, who was able to talk about the future. She had what some people call a pathonic spirit. So Paul doesn't suggest that the prophecy or the tongues proceeded from God, but he does remind them that they were inspired utterances other than that which proceeds from the Spirit of God. So it was, in a sense, inspired. So Paul says that they were carried away to these dumb idols, however they were led. And most believe that basically what he's saying there was just however they were led, that they were being led away or seduced by Satan himself. So Paul says that the Corinthians were individuals who were carried away to dumb idols, led astray to them. But basically what he's getting at is, is he wants to remind them, but something has happened to them. See, that shouldn't be taking place. Something's happened to you. You have received the, the gratuitous kindness of divine grace, which has worked in their hearts and delivered them from that kind of sin and would, that would cause them to run after dumb idols. They've been delivered from that. Therefore, he says in verse 3, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So the question we should ask is, did someone in the church at Corinth really stand up and say, Jesus is cursed. Well, there's a lot of debate about that. Some say, yes, there were those who were actually doing that. And there were some who say, no, that didn't take place. 
There are several different views. There's, uh, I, I think there were several things that were going on with that. One interesting view uh, that one commentator pointed out is he believed this. He said that the Corinthian believers time and again tried to find room for their pagan or cultural practices. And that's, that's not an uncommon thing. That they were trying to find room for their cultural practices within the Christ community. So he says it was quite likely that they also continued their practice or the pagan practice of cursing those who they disagreed with. And so that there was a Christian change in the way they would pronounce a curse on someone. And so what he is pointing out is that Jesus may not be the object of the curse, but the subject. And so they would then say, in the name of Jesus, I'm cursing you. That, that, was, that was what he thinks may have been taking place. And that what Paul is saying is you cannot use Jesus' name and curse formulas as the pagans use their gods to bring a curse on others. So if you reformulate what Paul is saying to understand it, what he's trying to get at here is no one speaking in the spirit ask Jesus to bring a curse on others. And of course, contrary to that is that if we speak by the Holy Spirit, we're saying that Jesus is Lord. Whether it is that or people were actually cursing Jesus when they were speaking in unknown tongues, and we'll deal with that specifically when we get to it, whatever was going on, there was a problem that was taking place. So when Paul makes this statement here that no one ever says Jesus is a curse um, uh, and no one can say uh, Jesus is Lord except for the Holy Spirit, we need to keep in mind that's not just saying the words. Okay, he's not, he, if you just utter the words, that doesn't mean that somehow, okay, he said Jesus is Lord, so it's all good. Okay, he's not saying that. There's much more involved here in this. One of the things that I find very interesting is is he does say this in a very specific way. Again, remember that when you study the Bible, there are things we have to notice sometimes what's not said. And then when we do notice what is said, it's also important to notice sometimes the way, the way it is said. What, what words were used? We can even ask ourselves, why was this word used and not another word? What is he trying to communicate? To call Jesus Lord here is the, is the Greek word kurios. Uh, some say that, well, this was used because what they needed to do was they needed to accept suffering uh, and not be the cause of, of suffering. Uh, well, perhaps. But I think that what's a, a stronger argument for why the word Lord is used, I know that they did this with the King James, the New King James. I think most good translations have some formula where it comes to the word Lord. Sometimes you have the word Lord in all caps. Sometimes the first letter L is caps and the other words are lowercase. And then in some cases, Lord is all caps, but the L is even bigger than the others. And normally what they're trying to show in many cases uh, is with that is it's, it indicates either the word Jehovah or the word Yahweh. And what, and what they're trying to get to is they're identifying the God of the Old Testament or the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Remember the God that we worship is a very specific God. That's why even when it comes to the discussion today where individuals will say, well, if a Muslim becomes a Christian, can they still use the word Allah? Because the word Allah uh, in the Islamic language is, is just, or in the Arabic language, just, just means God. But the difficulty with that is you, an individual normally has in mind some specifics about the, the God they're declaring. So like in our language, if we just say God, that could mean a lot of things. So that's why... It's important when we sometimes talk about, well, we're talking about Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ or the God of the Bible or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there have been, uh, there's been this big debate on the mission field about when Muslims become Christians and 
how they address God and, or how they would be allowed to address God. I've come across, I've talked to actually a few and I've asked them this question. I said, well, if they want to use the word Allah, how would they answer this question? Do they now believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That's very specific. And, and one missionary I spoke to said, oh yes, they would absolutely be able to, to affirm that. And another one said, it's a good question, I don't know. And I think that's important. So here, what he says, that this individual is uh, able to say only by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is Lord, what that person then is confessing is that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. That's what he's getting at. The word Lord, again, is used to translate Yahweh or just the letters Y-H-W-H. Again, that's done consistently throughout the Old Testament. Again, Yahweh is the God of the Old Testament. And so that's what we're saying about Jesus Christ. That he is the God who made the covenant with Israel and drew them out of Egypt into the land and into the promises. So if we say that Jesus is Lord, we are saying that Jesus is Jehovah. So then if you have a Jehovah's Witness come to your door, uh, if you want to make the conversation short, because you don't want to talk to him, just say, well, I believe that Jesus is Jehovah. They know exactly what you mean. And of course, they will believe that you've committed blasphemy uh, because they do not believe that. So here... When he, those who are able to say this, and again, what I believe is kind of present here and also in many other passages in the Bible, that when we make this confession, again, it's not just saying words. To make this confession means that you're speaking out of a deep sense of conviction. You're not, you're not just mouthing words. That you believe who Jesus is. And so if, if I'm having a discussion with anyone and there may be any a thought in my mind, there may be some kind of confusion or some confusion may enter into the mind, as to who it is I believe in, I always make sure that I clear it up and I would tell them that I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the formula that I use. I would tell them that I believe that Jesus is Jehovah. I use that terminology because people have heard those terms thrown around. I want to make it clear they understand what I believe in, that Jesus is God himself. And it is right and proper that we pray to him and that we worship him. Because he is God. Yes, we believe in the triune God. The central figure of that always in debates is often going to be who is Jesus. And that question is very, very important. That's why then in the book of Philippians chapter 2 it says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One commentator said this, to just see how breathtaking this statement is, we must understand what Paul has in mind. He is quoting the Lord, speaking to the prophet Isaiah, which in Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in 22, reads this way, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And so again, that is who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. He is Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. And as a Pharisee, Paul knew that. He knew that text very well. And I believe that is what he is saying. That Jesus of Nazareth is Yahweh. 
And as Charles Spurgeon once said, we should just pause and feel the weight of that statement. And so as Paul writes this letter here to these Corinthians, they're not grasping the weight of that statement. They're not grasping the weight of the importance of, of, of doctrine and of the place of Christ and how they are to approach life and how they are approach these issues and think about them. They were approaching them being focused on themselves first and foremost and what these things do for me and how these things affect me and how I feel about it. And what he's trying to do is rearrange their, their paradigm, change their focus and put it where it needs to be. Because when it, when it, when it, when it becomes when we become focused on what we're supposed to be focused on, when, when we bring Jesus into view, he then is the standard that we use. If he is the chief cornerstone that the scripture says that he is, then things will then begin to fall in place. There will be understanding. There will be a grasping of truth and the proper application of the truth. We will no longer be uninformed. And if we find that we are uninformed, then we go back to the word of life to make sure that we can understand these things so that we will not then be led astray. That we won't just be pursuing after this experience or that experience. Because for many individuals, that is really what it boils down to. What it really boils down to is the reason why I pray this way or the reason why I go here, the reason why I do this is because it makes me feel good or it makes me feel close to God. And I'm not poo-pooing the idea of feeling good. I'm not against feeling good. What I am against is feeling good when, when, when it's just all in your head. What I'm against is when you feel good about things that are wrong. Definitely if you feel good about things that are sinful. You know, our emotions are to be subject to the Word of God. Our emotions are to be subject to our mind, to the doctrine, the truth of the Word of God. So then we find our joy and we find our happiness, we find it in the truth of who Jesus Christ is. We then can, I believe to the fullest, experience the greatness of, of the, the life that we have here on earth. Because we know who we are in Christ. And we know who it is that we can turn to in our time of trouble. And we know who it is that's going to usher us into heaven when our time comes. We can have absolute trust and confidence in Him. And, and we know that we can, we can have that trust in Him because we know that He loves us. And the Bible has explained to us that we know that He loves us. How do we know this? He didn't just say the words. He sent His only Son, Christ, to live among us knowing that he would be rejected and hated and gossiped about and spit on and tortured and crucified. And he sent him anyway because he knew the only way for you and I to be reconciled to him so he could adopt us as his children is for the penalty of our sin to be paid because he knew that if we were to pay for the penalty of our own sin, then we would never be with him for all of eternity. And so he did all of that for us. And so Christ came and lived among us and God placed our sin upon him and he died on the cross and he was buried as the scripture says and on the third day he rose again. Amen. And so we worship this living savior. We, this is the one that we focus on. The one that we look to. The one that is the answer to the problems that face all mankind. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, Lord. You are so good to us. Father, sometimes when we think about it, it's amazing, not only that you saved us out of our sin, but even knowing, Lord, that after we would trust Christ, that we would still struggle, we would still sin, that we would not always elevate your word as we ought to, 
that we would sometimes relegate it to a, a back burner issue, that we would sometimes still stubbornly hold on to our old ways of thinking. So Father, we pray and we ask that you would forgive us of all of that. We pray that you would encourage us to seek you and to seek the truth about you in and through the word of God. We pray, Lord, you help us to be disciplined again, just to begin to, to read the word on a regular basis and to think about it. The Father, we would thirst after righteousness, that we would thirst after the true doctrine of the word of God, that we would want to know, that we would want to know you better, that we would want to know everything, that we would want to know especially what it is that you have for us. The Father, we may truly experience deeply the great joy of knowing you. And Father, we do ask for those here today who may have never experienced that. We ask that your spirit would, in your kindness, but also in your firmness, that you would convict them of their need of Christ and recognize that if they just trust in him, believe in Christ, give him their life, you will, you will save them from their sin and adopt them as a child. And so, Father, we ask again that we would be strengthened by your word and that you would encourage our hearts throughout this week. May we always live and act as believers, as Christians, as those who belong to you. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.